Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. You are tuned to Wild Oak Living here on KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. This program is all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. If you would like to get in touch with me or have feedback or questions about this program, please send an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to share with you um, uh, a conversation with the authors of a book called Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Uh, and I'd like to, I'm really honored to welcome to Wild Oak Living this morning, uh, Joanne Goldblum and Colleen Shaddox. Uh, let me just give you a, a bit of background on my guests, and then we're going to start the conversation about this big, big topic. Um, and there are so many facets of it, and, and, and our guests have written such a fascinating book that's full of solutions and and full of information about what to do about poverty. Joanne Goldblum is CEO and founder of the National Diaper Bank Network, uh, encompassing more than 200 member organizations that provide diapers and other basic needs to families across America. In 2018, she founded the Alliance for Period Supplies, which provides free hygiene products to the one in four people for whom menstruation means difficulty attending school and work. Joanne has spent her career working with and advocating for families in poverty. She has written op-eds for the Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, and HuffPost. Uh, She has also been an ABC person of the week and been subject uh, of profiles on CNN and People and many other outlets. In 2007, she was chosen as one of 10 Robert Wood Johnson community health leaders on the basis of her work to found the New Haven Diaper Bank. Welcome to Wild Oak Living, Joanne Goldblum. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, so happy, happy to be here. Thank you. And I'd also like to welcome Colleen Shaddox. She is a print and radio journalist and activist. Her publication credits include the New York Times, Washington Post, National Public Radio, America Magazine, and many more. She left daily newspapers when an editor reprimanded her for writing too many stories about poor people and went to work in a soup kitchen instead. She's had one foot in journalism and one in nonprofits ever since. In states throughout the country, Colleen has worked on winning campaigns to get kids out of adult prisons, to end juvenile life without parole, and to limit shackling in juvenile courts. She's also a frequently anthologized fiction writer. Her award-winning play, The Shakespeare's and other dramatic works, have been performed around the country. Welcome, Colleen Shaddix, to Wild Oak Living this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to just... um, Give a bit of a back background on your book from the from the uh, uh, from the from the book cover, just because it, it I think it does a really great job at summarizing the topic that we want to talk about today. Um, and and so let me just share with you um, some some of the information: water, food, housing, the most basic and crucial needs for survival. Yet forty percent of people in the United States don't have the resources to get them. With key policy changes, we could eradicate poverty in this country within our lifetime, but we need to get started now. 
Nearly 40 million people in the United States live below the poverty line, about $26,200 for a family of four. Low-income families and individuals are everywhere, from cities to rural communities. While poverty is commonly seen as a personal failure or a deficiency of character or knowledge, it's actually the result of bad policy. Public policy has purposefully erected barriers that deny access to basic needs, creating a society where people can easily become trapped, not because we lack the resources to lift them out, but because we are actively choosing not to. Broken America, this is the book we're talking about today by our guests, offers a galvanizing look at life in poverty in this country, how circumstances and public policy conspire to keep people poor and the concrete steps we we can take to end poverty for good. Every chapter features action items readers can use to combat poverty, both nationwide and in our local communities, including the most effective public policies you can support and how to work hand-in-hand with representatives to effect change. Broken America offers a crucial roadmap for securing a brighter future. Thank you again, Joanne Goldblum and Colin Shedox, first of all, for writing this amazing I would say it's it's probably the textbook on on poverty, in terms of in terms of its timeliness and its comprehensiveness, and also in terms of the solutions that you offer. Uh, I Thank find you. it really inspiring that each chapter offers uh, several steps for what you can do. It's very specific steps that people can take, and you know if 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 every person who reads your book adopts just one of those steps, boy, that would make a big difference already. Yes, it would. I'd like I'd like to ask uh, each of you uh, as a, by way of sort of an introduction. Um, what inspired you to write this book and and to write this book together? I don't know who wants to start. Joanne, go ahead. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> Colleen and I have known each other for a long time now, and as you said in the introduction, I'm a social worker, and Colleen is a journalist, and we. Um, we have found over the years that we really agree about a lot and we we really have seen that the issue of poverty in the united states has not been looked at the way that we wanted to look at it um and so you know over the years we've collaborated quite a bit um when did we start colleen three years ago on this book yes we did yeah so you know, we really have, um, were committed to writing something that showed the depth and breadth of poverty across the country. What else, Colleen? Yeah, I would say I, I keep coming back to the thing that Toni Morrison said, that if the book you want to read hasn't been written, you need to write it. <laughs> And that was really true for us. There are lots of books about poverty. They tend to very much focus on a community or a family or even one person. And the message you can potentially take from that is, wow, what a screwed up place. What a screwed up family. It was important to us to really go coast to coast, urban, suburban, rural, black, white, brown, to show that it's a system that creates poverty in the United States. And I really wanted to do the book with Joanne because, A, it was Joanne's 
Joanne's brainchild to start with. Um, but Joanne's work, as you mentioned, she founded a diaper bank. She understands that poverty is a lack of resources, not a lack of character. And that may sound very basic, but that's a pretty revolutionary way to look at it in the United States. That's not how most people look at it, and that's certainly not what's reflected in our policy. The, the common understanding um, seems to be, I, I think, uh, this is what I'm taking away from what you just said and from reading your book, um, is that if, if a person is poor, um, that, that has to do with that person. Right mm-hmm. then, and if you fix either that person's circumstance, you know, if you fix that person's circumstances, or if you fix that person, you know, then then that's how you address poverty. And it, this common saying of you know, teach a person teach a person to fish, or give a person a fish. You know, everybody knows that saying. Um, what is what is what is the the, the difference between sort of the in other words, how should how should our perspective on poverty change to to truly understand it and to truly address it? We need to think of it more as a wage problem than a job problem, right? Most people in poverty, most healthy adults in poverty work, but their work doesn't get them out of poverty. Yeah. You know, we have not changed the minimum wage in this country since 2009 but the consumer price index has gone up 24 percent in that period so you can't work your way out of poverty in many many jobs many jobs are really designed to keep you in poverty and you know the reason when i first started the new haven diaper bank which is now the diaper bank of connecticut you know 17 years ago I did it in large part because, so I'm a social worker and I was doing direct service, um, you know, going to people's homes and working with them where they were. And, um, you know, all of them were families, all of them were poor. Um, But what I found was a few things. One is that even as someone who thought that they understood what poverty in the United States looked like, I was shocked when I went into people's homes and, um, you know, in Connecticut, they didn't have heat and hot water, you know, and particularly I worked with this one family, mom, um, had developmental issues and had three children under three and they never had toilet paper in the house. And, you know, as I said, I'm a social worker. I was working at Yale child study center. We were doing all sorts of clinical work and thinking about things clinically And what I finally had to say out loud is there's no clinical intervention for not having toilet paper. There just isn't. I I can't do anything except buy her toilet paper. And the same goes for diapers. You know, I saw the same mom empty solids out of diapers and put the diaper back on her baby. And, you know, I was supposed to be teaching parenting skills. And I finally had to say she knows how to diaper her baby. She doesn't have the money to get what she needs. And, and so I really had to take a step back from my training and from everything that I sort of believed and, and had to say, okay, you know what? Sometimes poverty is the problem, you know, yeah. point blank. 
And when when you say poverty, um, I, I, I'd like to perhaps spend a couple of minutes on talking about what is poverty in your view? Um, it, it's not just not having enough money, right? I mean, there's there's more aspects to poverty than access to money, although money can fix a lot of aspects of poverty. But I'm wondering if you, if maybe you could spend a couple minutes talking about what poverty is. So we define it as the inability to meet your basic needs, right? Food, water, housing, hygiene, transportation. And we know that before the pandemic, 40% of Americans were in that place. Yeah. And, and so, you know, yes, poverty is many other things, but, but I think that what Colleen and I believe is that addressing the issues of money solves many of those problems. Um, you know, did this family I work with need other support? Maybe. But we needed to even the line to find out what kind of support they needed. They needed to, she needed to have enough clean diapers for her baby. She needed to have cleaning supplies in her home, you know. And, and so that is money. And, um, you know, while there are problems that go beyond it, the issue of poverty is a money issue. And it expresses itself, uh, you know, in, in, I mean, there, there's so many facets to how mm-hmm. poverty and the lack of resources ends up impacting you. And, and you spend the first part of your book, um, um, you know, after, after you sort of address the fact that, that, you know, that poverty isn't, isn't something that an individual is necessarily responsible for, because there's many ways of getting into poverty, as we've now seen during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the pandemic has probably made it clearer than anything in, in our lifetimes that that it's very easy to slip from having enough to not having enough without without any fault of your own. Right. And that's, I think, a really important point and and something that we really wanted to make clear in the book. In the United States, the issue of poverty carries um, with it, thoughts of moral failing, you know, thoughts of that people who experience poverty are in fact less than. And we felt like it was really important. And the reason, as Colleen said, that we went from coast to coast and interviewed people of all different backgrounds is because we really wanted to make that clear that, it, you know, being poor doesn't mean you are less than. It means you don't have the things you need to meet your basic needs. And it's interesting now that poverty really threatens a lot of people who had been middle class or even higher before. What's our response to it? Our response is to give them money, right? You know, we've gotten stimulus checks. Um, the idea of giving people in poverty cash payments has been really controversial in the United States since we started doing it. Um, and there's this feeling like, well, you can't give them money because you create dependency. Like, no, what you do is you help them pay their back rent and get back on their feet. Um, and we, we seem to be seeing that now in a way that we haven't before. And one interesting... 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, and that's why, you know, usually Colleen points this out. It's why we made, named the book, you know, Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Because we believe that many people, as much as it's everywhere, many people don't see it. And beyond that, really don't understand it and do think it is a moral failing. And this is an interesting uh, aspect of, of, of poverty. I think, I think in the, until the pandemic, it was, it was possible for a lot of people who lived, you know, secure, comfortable lives, not to see poverty, except perhaps when they encountered homeless people on the street. Right. Lots of people think that you would know if you saw someone who was poor, Right. And it, people who are poor often don't look any different than people who aren't. You know, they're the people who are giving you your burgers, making your lattes, uh, you know, doing work in your homes. You know, poor people don't look any different. And, um, you know, people think, well, I don't see a lot of homelessness in my area, so there must not be poverty. You know what I mean? It's, it's funny. And I, I think that's a really good point for, for making that. Thank you. You, you, in your book, uh, and by the way, let me just remind our listeners that you are listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I am talking to the authors of a book called Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. And my guests are Joanne Samuel Goldblum and Colin Shaddox, and they are the co-author authors of the book Broke in America. Um, you, you talk about... Um, in you. The, the, your chapter basically covers, uh, your book covers uh, in part one basic needs, then what kind of uh, forms of oppression contribute to poverty, and then your last, the last part of your book is, is solutions. And I wanted to, um, I, I know that, I know that you can't both stay with us uh, for uh, until 9.45, and so I wanted to t- uh, save talking about solutions um, towards towards the end of our interview, and, and I'm I'm going to be sure to leave enough time to talk about that because that's such a big part. But I just I just wanted to, um, and 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 we you know there's so many aspects that we could cover, and I know we can't cover it all. So I just wanted to maybe ask you um, uh, in in the in the time that we have available, uh, what what would you suggest that that we focus on before we talk about solutions in terms of making the issue of poverty and how it expresses itself uh, visible to our listeners. One suggestion would be to, to go to that middle section of the book where we talk about other forms of oppression. You know, I was really struck yesterday was equal pay day mm-hmm. which is the day on which the average U S woman has earned as much as the average white male did the year before you know it takes us another few months um but equal pay day for latinas doesn't come until october yeah that's absolutely disgraceful and we saw that time and again that other forms of oppression really sunk people deeper into poverty and we also really strongly believe that the discrimination that we see in sexism and racism really forms these negative images of people in poverty and makes people less sympathetic and, and less willing to work for justice. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that that hits the nail on the head, Colleen. Um, you know, certainly we saw again and again um, throughout all of the earlier chapters, many of the people, you know, when we talk about um, housing, it impacts black people, you know, um, unfair housing and housing discrimination impacts black people at a considerably higher rate. Um, you know, and, and all sorts of other issues like that. Um, water in Detroit, Colleen Wright, you spoke to a woman who said, they're just trying to get me out of out of the city. Yeah, she um, her water had been cut off as happened to many of her neighbors and she felt it was the city promoting gentrification. They're ready to build a new Detroit full of young white professionals and she didn't quite fit. And this, this, there, there's, there's so many more aspects to this. Uh, um, education plays a big role in this as well, right? How, how our schools are organized, how we fund our schools. I'm wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about that. Sure, I'm sorry. I, I it cut out for a second there. If you could oh, okay. just say that one more time, I apologize. Um, in the, in the chapter where you where you talk about um, the the uh, various forms of oppression that contribute towards poverty, you also talk about schools and the education and how 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 schools and also how schools are funded contributes to poverty. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it's really interesting, right? Because in most parts of the country, it is property tax that pays for schools. And so by virtue of the way we have decided to fund public education, we have said out loud, people of means, children growing up in wealthier towns, will have a more robust education. You know, we, we don't even put it in small print or anything. We say it, you know, right out loud. And, and it really is, um, I think it's one of the ways that we see poverty as so systematic, as the issues are, <clears throat> you know, what, what can you do if you live in a, um, you know, low-income zip code? Your schools are funded by those property taxes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that Colleen and I both feel like we should talk about a lot more, you know, that, that it's a broken system. And the fact that it's so widely accepted as a, as a reasonable way to support schools that, you know, um, where we're from in Connecticut, right, that, that kids in Greenwich deserve to have twice as much spent on them per capita than kids in Hartford? Like, I don't get it. They're the same kids. It must cost what it costs. Right, Colleen? Yeah, and another thing that we really saw, which actually Joanne's husband helped me see because he's an educator, um, is that attendance is this yes. tremendous problem in high-poverty right. schools. Right. Kids just don't come to school as regularly because they're sick because their asthma isn't well managed or they've had to work 
the night before because they're contributing to putting food on the table for their family. There are all these things that keep poor kids out of school, everything from a winter coat to much more serious family situations. So what that does is if you're teaching in a high poverty school and you're trying to teach kids how to divide fractions and you've got that spread out over six lessons, the chance that you're going to have the majority of your class there for every one of those lessons is pretty slim. So how do you teach in those circumstances? How do you help kids move forward? And really the best schools that we saw were doing things like providing washing machines and showers at school so the kids who didn't have access at home would get them. Or a a friend of mine buys children alarm clocks because maybe mom and dad are both gone because they do shift work and there is no way to get you on the bus. So giving a kid an alarm clock can actually get them to school better. We, We keep telling kids, stay in school, stay in school, but we don't really help them do it. And, and that's also, really, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, that's yeah. really an issue across the board. Schools, but in all of our policy planning, federally, state, and local, we think about the big things. We don't think about the little things. And so, my organization, the work we do, our sort of tagline is small things impact big things. You know, without a diaper, a mom or dad can't go to work or school because child care centers require parents provide those. Um, without hygiene products, all the education in the world isn't going to get you a job. Because if you show up for a job interview and your clothes are dirty, your body smells, and you've got a kid in tow, no one's going to hire you. You know, you need these things up front. But when we do sort of... Um, you know, education uh, to help people get to the point of working. We don't take into account clothing, hygiene products, child care. To the extent that child care is involved, and every state does it a little bit differently, but frequently that child care isn't available until after you have accepted a job. So, and then they don't start paying, you know, because it's the government. It takes a few weeks. Um, what are you supposed to do with your child during those few weeks? You know, it, it just, the, the, the policy is broken. Um, Joanna, I, I know that you need to leave us yes. at, at, at 9.30, so um, I just want to give you an opportunity to make some closing remarks before anything that you'd like to leave us with. Sure, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having us on the call, and I know Colleen will do an amazing job talking about all the solutions. Um, You know, I I think that if there's one thing that we hope people get from reading our book, it's to, um, you know, recognize that we are all starting from the same place. And the idea of the work that we want to do is to level the playing field. You know, we're not saying poor kids should get more. We're saying everybody should get equal. So um, I really appreciate you having us, and I hope you all enjoy the the rest of the conversation. Have have a great day. Thank you, Joanne Samuel Goldblum, for being on and for writing this book and for sharing all this information with us, and all the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
You are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It's all about living sustainably in building men- a community in Mendocino County and beyond. And today I am joined uh, by uh, two fascinating guests who have written an amazing book called Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Po- uh, poverty. And uh, I'd like, and, and my, uh, the guest who has just left us was Joanne Goldblum, and uh, Colleen Shaddix is still with us. She is the co-author of the book. And uh, I'd like to, as, as Joanne mentioned, I'd like to focus the, the, the last sort of third of our interview, if you don't mind, on, on solutions, because uh, th- this is one of the things that I really um, valued about reading your book is that each of the chapters that you talk about where you talk, look at the various aspects of poverty and, you know, we didn't really have time to get into it all, but, you know, uh, it's, there are so many aspects to this that 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 impact people's lives and uh you know water food housing power uh transportation hygiene joanne talked about that a bit and health uh and and all of these uh, all of these impact people's lives and 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 you know it, it, a, a problem in any one of these areas can you know can make somebody go from just getting by to you know to sinking into abject poverty and and um, and and the fascinating the fascinating sort of conclusion that I drew from this, and I have to admit that even though I've considered myself to be sort of a lifelong liberal, it was kind of an aha moment for me when you say we don't have to accept poverty. There doesn't need to be poverty. You know, we're we're so we're so caught up in this rich and poor and you know stratification kind of mm-hmm. kind of way of looking at the world but you break through that and 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 you argue no it doesn't have to be like that and i'm wondering if when if we could start our discussion about solution with with some thoughts about that yeah absolutely thank you for going in that direction johanna because that's dear to me you know during the pandemic when many americans lost their housing Billionaire wealth went up $1.1 trillion in this country. There's not a lack of resources. It's very badly distributed. You know, Jeff Bezos is the richest man on the planet. And we know that his workers are using food stamps and, you know, telling us that they don't get bathroom breaks. They could have a lot more. And Jeff Bezos could still be a very rich man. You know, we've sort of lost proportion. We can definitely end poverty in the United States. Um, And, you know, the American Rescue Plan is actually going to go a good ways toward ending child poverty. What we need to do is keep adopting those kinds of good programs that put money into people's pockets and to take them further. And we also need to do things on our local level. And I, I, I personally find that very satisfying because you can see the change right away. You have so much more power locally than you do on the state or federal level. Um, you know, I had talked about absenteeism and kids in poverty. One thing you can do is you can go to your school board and you can say, okay, Every year you tell us what the SAT scores were and you tell us how many of our kids got into highly competitive colleges. 
I want to know what the absentee rate is. I want to know how many kids in our system aren't getting to school because are chronically absent. And once you know that, you can start asking questions like, was there adequate transportation for everybody in the district? Are there language barriers that are keeping people out of school? Do we know that every kid can get access to appropriate clothing to come to school? When you drill down like that and you start examining issues through the poverty lens, you can go so much farther. You know, I I think about how now people talk about the climate impact of policies. And 15 years ago, that wasn't common at all. What happens is we nationally built a movement where we said, hey, this is an existential threat and we need to pay attention to this. I would say that poverty is an existential threat to our democracy and we need to pay attention to that. And we need to look at every policy through the lens of how is this going to affect people without resources? When you when you're poor and you have to work two or three jobs, you might not be able to go and vote. For example, right? That's right. That's, um, yeah, and it's and therefore you have less power to influence your environment. It's a great time right now, actually, to be working on voting rights before the next election. You know, we saw during COVID that more places allowed absentee voting, allowed voting by mail, and that makes it easier for people who are in low-wage hourly jobs who can't take time off to vote. Anything that makes voting easier will help low-income people voting. We know that low-income people vote at a very, very low rate. And, you know, there are all these ads around election time. Go out and vote. Exercise your right. Well, make it easier for me. You know, if we really wanted everybody to participate in elections. I find it hard to believe that we would hold them on a Tuesday in November during working hours. Right. And do better. Most of the world votes on a Sunday. Yep. And much <laughs> of the world registration's automatic and you have more than one day to vote. There's, you know, we, we do not make it easy. And the harder we make it, that bar is going to be that much higher for people who are already in poverty. You have a, 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 a chapter at the end of your book called How to Change the World in Eight Steps. <laughs> and and these are, it's a very succinct chapter. It's, it's just a couple of pages, but uh, rarely have I seen such succinct instructions to to uh, you know what individuals can do to make a difference and and that's you know what my program is all about so i'm wondering if you could spend some time talking at least about some of those steps and maybe you know inspiring some of our listeners to to move in that direction (laughs) joanne and i always say that activists are just people who won't go away You don't need to have gone to the Kennedy School of Government. You don't need a billion-dollar endowment. You you have a power base right now, whether you know it or not. And that power base may be your neighborhood. It may be your union. It may be your PTO. It may be your faith community. Get people together within your power base and start talking about these issues. You know, I'd love it if you read our book, but read some other book or watch a documentary together about 
poverty in your community and figure out how you together can make an impact. Working in groups is always so much more effective than working alone. It's frustrating and it's a pain in the butt, but that's the way to go. You can do so much more together. And, you know, it's great that we can do things online now. We can write our reps with a click of the button and all that sort of thing. But I really think getting out in the world and meeting people makes us much more effective advocates. And I would particularly recommend working with, not just on behalf of, but with people who are actually in poverty themselves. They are the experts on what they need. Traditionally, policy tells people in poverty what they need. And policy, you know, Joanne's example was just so perfect. You're not going to be sitting in an office and figure out that diapers are keeping people from going to work. You need to talk with families who are in it and respect them and ask them what they want you to do instead of coming in with your ready-made solution. Yeah. And you mentioned teamwork. You mentioned uh, working working in in groups as as a as a frustrating but powerful approach. It is um, absolutely. Um, you know, people are people are really hard to herd. <laughs> but um, I can't do everything, right? I I'm good at writing the press release and getting the attention, but I'm terrible at things like record keeping and organization. And I need to work with somebody who's good at that. And they need to work with me. And together we're perfect. Right. Right. So you have a you have a a few tips on how to find, you know, once you've gotten a group together and you've decided that you're going to work on a particular thing, you have some tips on on how to set a goal for the group and and how to walk through how to work as a group, like, for example, will this action significantly improve the lives of people in poverty? I think that's a key, that's a key question, right? In terms of what do you decide to do? Right. And so what is your leverage point? You know, like Joanne figured out that diapers and period products, if you give those to people, they will be healthier and they have a better ability to earn money. Wow. So that is, you know, such a perfect example of something that would not be obvious to you unless unless you either experienced it or somebody shared with you that that's their experience. Exactly. Would not be the first thing you'd think about, but it's such an important aspect. Exactly. When you talk to people in poverty, there is always some barrier that seems absolutely ridiculous to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I interviewed a woman who lost her housing and her chance to go to school because her car broke down. Now, you know, my son had a car accident right after he graduated from college, totaled the car, and his dad and I said, well, he can't look for a job without a car, so we're going to buy him one. Right. You know, a credit card is such a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, And there's a wonderful nonprofit, actually, that, operates around the country called good news garage that what they do is they get high quality used cars to people who live in areas with no public transportation so that they can get to work yeah yeah um 
you talked about, you know, the responsibilities. What am I good at? What are you what are you good good at? Um, what are some of the ways that you like if people want to be active at a community level, what are some effective ways to help get the word out about what you're doing and, and to perhaps create a broader circle of of people who are engaged in a particular topic? So one thing is to find out who's already doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's very exciting to start an organization, but it's often better to join in an organization that already exists because then you're you're adding your power instead of dividing the community's energy. Um, and we we are so blessed and cursed with social media right now. It is very easy to start spreading ideas around. And one thing that I really recommend to people is have a bit of a messaging session, like have everybody sit around the table and break down what you're trying to do into really clear language that is free of jargon and that presupposes no knowledge whatsoever. You don't need to talk down to people, but you certainly can't presume that everybody knows what you know or or has this awareness that you're newly wakened to. You really need to talk in a way that makes it easy for anybody to sign on and also gives them some action steps right away. You know, bring your diapers to this location or call your state rep about this bill because people don't want to be theoretically involved, right? They want to be able to go and do and use their time and their power to make the world better today. Right. Well, unfortunately, we're almost at at 9.45, and I know you have to jump onto another call. So I just want you you to maybe spend, if, if you have it, a minute or so for any closing remarks or any action steps or websites contact info you'd like to share? Sure. Joanne and I have a website called brokenamerica.net and you can find out more about our thoughts and ways you can get involved and lots of great organizations around the country that would be glad to have your help. I think the most important thing to remember is that we are all in this together. It sounds trite, but we have a society that really encourages division. Mm-hmm. And what we need is to understand that, hey, I may not be exactly like you in a thousand different ways, but, you know, I want a roof over my head. I want a square meal. I want to know my children are safe and have a future. And we all deserve that. And we're not really going to have a healthy society until we make sure that everybody has that. Well, thank you so much for for writing this important book, Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty, by my guest, uh, Colleen Shaddix, together with Joanne Goldblum, who joined us earlier. All the best for your work and all the best for, for any projects that you undertake. Thank you, Johanna. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. You are listening to Wild Oak Living the program about living sustainably and and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. This is Johanna Wildock. I bring you this program every other Thursday from uh, 9 until 10 a.m. Uh, and I'd like to spend the uh, last uh, few minutes, the last 15 minutes or so, 14 minutes now of our show to share with you um, and, and I'm, I'm a bit distracted because I'm trying to 
find the email that I want to share with you. <laughs> and it's just gone away. I wanted to share a story with you. And this story came to my attention by way uh, of a local listserv. Um, and uh, it's, um, I found it such an inspiring story because it, it shows it, you know, it's an example of how, uh, first of all, how important it is uh, if you, you know, if you are in a situation where you need help to reach out for help. And also how when you do that, a whole community of people steps up, uh, steps up and, and, um, and helps. And, and that's what this story is about. Uh, it was shared with uh, the local announce listserv a while back uh, in early March with, um, by uh, Carol Lillis. And um, I'm going to first share the story with you, and then I'm going to share more information about an organization that Carol is involved with that was instrumental at, at helping um, with this with the, with this with uh, with this project okay so the the way i found out about this is because carol wrote a letter to the listserv uh, thanking the community for helping uh with with this project and so i'm just going to share uh, carol's letter with you because i think it does such a great job of describing this and it's so inspirational so carol says dear and i do mean dear community we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your generosity in helping a couple at their greatest time of need and feel this is time to bring you up to date. And so this is a follow-on letter to a letter that was posted earlier, of course. Just three weeks ago, a beautiful member of our community, Susan Shaw, reached out to my organization, SOS, which is the Networking for Mendocino Coast Companion Animals, with an unusual request. She was trying to help a woman whose husband was dying of cancer purchase chicken feed for her flock of 21 chickens. The woman was only able to feed her chickens every other day due to lack of funds and wished to rehome the chickens she could no longer care for. SOS was more than glad to purchase feed with, and with just one call to our dear friend Toby, forever homes were found for all 18 hens. Next, Susan informed us that the woman we were assisting was burning furniture to keep her dying husband warm. There was no money for firewood. We reached out to list the listserv and asked for help, and you, our friends, came through with enough firewood to last the winter and beyond. We once again thank our friend Toby and her friend Adriana for being the first to deliver a truckload of firewood and Susan went out to pick up wood offered by other members of our community. And then we learned the couple had two young dogs that needed to be neutered and were in need of vaccines. SOS set up appointments uh, at uh, uh, MCHS for low-cost spay-neuter, and we will cover all costs. Susan once again has stepped forward to transport the dogs to and from their surgery appointments. And how were we able to do all of this? It's because we live in a community that cares deeply about their neighbors. And she goes on to say, we want you to know how grateful we are for helping a neighbor who believed she had nowhere to turn. The husband is now in hospice care, and thanks to you, his wife's most immediate needs are taken care of. We continue to search for homes for the three young roosters, roosters that the couple hatched from eggs. They loved the animals and wished to find these roosters' homes where they will not end up in a pot. Um, 
with love and gratitude for you, for who you are and what you do, uh, Carol Lillis for SOS. Um, and that, and, and so because SOS played such a, a, a um, crucial role in this, in helping this, this couple with their needs, uh, I asked Carol to share some information about SOS with me that I would now like to share with you because, you know, it's just an example of how, again, how our community stepped, saw a problem, stepped and stepped up to help address it. So SOS is the Networking for Mendocino Coast Companion Animals, and it's a nonprofit 501c3 all-volunteer organization that was founded in 2009 um, and uh, this is this is uh, what Carol writes about this organization, so I'm just going to share that with you. It, it says, our original purpose was to support our county animal shelter, Fort Bragg, through volunteerism and by providing all the things needed by shelter beyond what the county could provide. Um, up until July 31, 2010, shelter closure, the SOS provided veterinary care, medicine, prescription diets, evaluation training treats, treats, toys, companionship, and foster homes for our abandoned and orphaned animals. We worked tirelessly to place animals in forever homes, and at the time of closure, we got each and, em- and every animal out alive. Um, SOS lobbied for eight and a half years to reopen the shelter, and um, she goes on to say, we are pleased to say it has been reopened now for close to two years. For the years our county shelter was closed on the coast, SOS recreated uh, its purpose. And she goes on to describe the organization as a safety net for our animal community or the gap insurance for pets. Um, We filled in where the other animals organizations left off and we continue to do so today. So here's some examples of what this organization does. Transport pets of seniors and disabled community members to the vet offered redemption assistance for folks whose pets were impounded by the county and who could not afford redemption fees. You will, you will see, you know, many links to our discussion earlier in the hour to poverty and how it also impacts how we can or cannot take care of our pets. Partnered with FIV Cat Rescue to raise funds for the purchase of oxygen mask kits to help save lives of dogs, cats, birds, hamsters, and distributed the kits to all six coastal fire departments to equip their fire trucks. Now, this is something I never would have thought about, but this is just so amazing that, you know, this organization thought to do that. Another thing that they do is help save lives of our pets. In addition, we were able to purchase reusable oxygen masks for the Mendocino County Sheriff's Canine Division, found foster homes, um, for lots of animals that were abandoned due to shelter closure and paid for medical assistance for many of these animals, created flyers to help lost animals find their way home and used social media to help connect owners with their lost pets, paid boarding fees for pets whose folks, uh, for pets of folks who went into the hospital and had no one to care for their pets or funds to board them. These pets would have had to be heartbreakingly surrendered to a shelter if there was no one to help fought for the lives of seven dogs that were sentenced to death by their owner at the time of her death, paid kennel fees while we worked with an amazing animal behavioral counselor to socialize these dogs and rehome them. 
With veterinary care far beyond the reach of low-income community members, we began offering assistance so these animals would not have to suffer due to an owner's inability to pay for care. We now partner with the Eileen Hawthorne Fund and Second Chance to cover vet bills far beyond any of the individual groups can cover. And when that's not enough, we do online outreach for more help. And Carol Lillis goes on to say, and this is another sort of, sort of really inspiring story. After seeing a beautiful shy dog at the Fort Bragg Animal Shelter who was born with three legs and a deformed leg that ended at the elbow, I knew we had to help. It pained us to see his uneven gait from full leg to stump. We reached out to a world-renowned prosthetic designer who'd seen, whom we'd seen on Animal Planet's um, and asked for help. To, to my amazement, Carol says, uh, he said he'd love to do it, and at a greatly reduced price, he created a prosthesis for, for this dog, Nemo. We found the best of foster homes for Nemo until the perfect home was found. And then there was Trinity, a dog starved close to death, brought to us by a young man down on his luck who found his dog, found this dog on the street and refused to let her die. She could only use three legs and the muscles on the right rear leg had atrophied to the point she tucked it right up against her body like a broken wing. When we got her to the vet, x-rays showed that she'd been shot. It was almost certain she would lose her leg. The young man cared for her better than he'd cared for himself for a very long time. He bathed her and fed her and gave her her meds. At the end of three weeks, Trinity returned to the vet and no one could believe this was the same dog they had seen before. She had begun. She had begun to put on weight on on that injured leg. Uh, she had begun to put weight on that injured leg, and the young man had saved her from losing it. He told me that as she healed, he began to do better himself. He'd contacted his dad, who had offered to take him in and help him find work. He sadly gave Trinity up to us with our promise to find her a great home. He did so because he knew his life was still too unstable to give this dog all she needed. We found her the best foster fail home and the rest is history. So how did we end up rescuing chickens and raising funds for firewood for a couple in need? Someone asked for help. This, and Carol Lillis goes, uh, goes on to say, this is just the tip of what we've done and what we do, but I hope you can find it. Yeah, okay. She says, she says, I hope I can find enough time on my program to talk about this, and I'm happily doing so right now. Um, Carol Lillis, president of SOS, thank you. Thank everyone uh, in our beautiful community for stepping up with this specific project and with so many other things you do. Just, just to quickly, I want to mention there's so many organizations out there. The Mendocino Coast Children's Fund, mccf.info the uh, um, Community Foundation of Mendocino County. Um, it, those are organizations, the North, North Coast Opportunities, those are organizations, three of many, that step up every day to help um, address poverty and to help address needs in our community. Um, and as my, as my guest, um, Colin Shaddock, said earlier, we don't have to accept poverty as a given. There are many things that we can do about it. And the American Rescue Plan and, for example, some of the other uh, projects around the country with uh, guaranteed uh, income have, have, shown, have shown that there are tools that we have to alleviate pro uh, poverty and to help everyone li live you know, fulfilling, fulfilling lives. Uh, 
to the to the greatest of their potential and that's that's the reason i do this show and that's the reason i talked to you earlier about the book broken america brokenamerica.net is the website for that book and that's why i share wanted to share this story with you now um i'm going to be back two weeks from today um i should i should lift up my phone so i can see our engineer, Eddie, who's going to tell me how much more time I have. Um, but I just want to let you know that I'm going to be back um, two weeks from today. I don't yet have a topic for this uh, for that show, but it's probably going to be a call-in program. So uh, stay tuned for some announcements about that upcoming program. It's probably going to be about community and about what our, our community is doing to get through this pandemic. I think it's time for another update on that. And then, um, and then, um, I'm, I'm going to invite your calls and your stories if you have more stories to share along the lines of what we've talked about today. Uh, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Um, I'd like to thank my guests, uh, Joanne Goldblum and Colin Sh- uh, Shaddox, um, who were on earlier to talk about Broken America. Um, and I hope that you found something inspiring in this program that inspires you to go on and 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 do your part in building community. Thank you so much for listening. This is Joanna Wilder. I'll be back in two weeks. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.